Stephen Palmer's Hairy London Episode 29 Back at the Suicide Club, Jeremy, Juinefier, Lord Blackenor and Franklin sat around a table, a pot of rosehip tea between them. The atmosphere was gloomy. It seems battle is inevitable, Lord Blackenor observed. Jeremy wanted to ask Blackenor about his knowledge of the War Cabinet's plans, but he could not, for fear of revealing himself. Farthing for your thoughts, Lord Blackenor said. Jeremy jumped in his seat, awoken from a brief reverie. Battle inevitable, did you say? Perhaps, perhaps, but not necessarily. Yet what can we do? You... Jeremy replied, could visit Lord Gorge and tell him not to be a fool. Do you want Britisher blood spilled on Charing Cross Road? No, neither do I. But what could I tell him? To negotiate with the Pearlies, to compromise. Change is inevitable. All of us here know that. Not least because we traipse across the world looking at how it changes. We must accept it now in our own backyard. Lord Blackenor shrugged, then stood up. Should I depart now? Wait, Jeremy said, standing also. You need a plan. A plan? Jeremy, there is more to you than meets the eye. What have you been up to? It's but a small thing. I know a little of the Cockney's wishes because of my recent travels through the East End. That's all. They wish to declare independence in their locale. Independence? The East End? Moonstruck adamant of the worst kind. Jeremy nodded. He'd expected this response. Now he felt trapped. He said, mm, Perhaps. But if Lord Gorge insists on fighting, London will never be the same. Surely you can see that any bloodshed is wrong. I do. But Lord Gorge is a sound man, a decent kipper, if truth be told. Jeremy shrugged. He felt now more than ever the peril of the tightrope along which he walked. Don't go to Downing Street just yet, he said. There's time yet for both sides to see sense. Very well, but I do not like your posturing. You're up to something, or I'm a cockney. Jeremy drew himself up to his full height and replied, I'm just trying to save London from needless bloodshed, which, some might argue, is the noblest path of all. Let's not forget what happened in Parisi. Now, good day to you, sir. Lady Bedwards and I are going to enjoy a light lunch. Jeremy and Genevieve ascended to her chambers, where, in the parlour, they discussed their options. I don't like this at all, Jeremy said. The tightrope I walk is sagging. Schwinnefier nodded. Both sides are entrenched. Jeremy thought a while, then said, The government is, I suspect, unshakable. We need to bring a boon of some kind to the Pearlies, so that Lord Gorge simply has no option but to negotiate. The Pearlies want their independent country, but don't believe it can happen. 
I think they would talk if they thought it might work. We need to give them something so powerful they hold the uprising and parley with the government. But what? I fear I don't know. Probably there's nothing we could give the Pearlies to halt the uprising. With that pessimistic assessment, they ate sproutlings and poached broccoli in a red wine sauce. Afterwards, Jeremy departed Bedwood's house, his hope another audience with the Pearlies. But he never reached St. Paul's. On Ludgate Hill, with the wind whipping around his shoulders and the smell of rain in the air, a figure emerged from an alley. It was Murchison Volume. Pantomime, I'll be bound, the officer said. He took a rapier-thin swordington from the holster at his side and raised it, his stance naught but aggression. Time for you to taste your medicine, you pipsqueak pipe cleaner. Jeremy drew his swordington at once. But then another figure emerged from the alley. Sir Hosley Vane. Yet, before anyone could speak further or make a move, there was a flash of light from the rooftop on the opposite side of the street. Jeremy looked up to see a man standing behind a tripod, a smoking tray at his side. Magnesium flash! A photogram must have been taken. And then the man taking the photogram emerged from behind the tripod. Yom gravel spit. Jeremy's heart leapt. You are undone, Fane, he cried. My man has indisputable evidence now that you and Murchison are in cahoots and out to kill me by Swordington. And I know you are Jacques the Raper. Sir Hosley snarled and gestured at Yom. I will have you. I will ruin your photograms. There will be no evidence. And with that, he was away. And Yom also. So, it's just me and you, Murchison said, approaching through the thin growth of hair, separating them. On guard, sirrah. Jeremy raised his swordington. He knew Murchison to be half-madman, fueled by hate and fear, the man would make a formidable opponent. But he had dueled on the high wall of Rajaputpur in the foothills of the Himalayas with the black fiend of Calcutta. Damn it, he knew how to wield a swordington. But so did Murchison. The man pranced like a drunken leprechaun, the needle-sharp tip of his weapon whirling in all directions seemingly at once. Jeremy altered his stance to one of defence. He needed to see what the man was capable of. Murchison attacked, using mesmeric speed to try to hypnotise his opponent, whirling his swordington this way and that, so that on occasion it seemed to Jeremy's half-befuddled eyes that the man held two weapons. Luckily, the sun was hidden by cloud, Dazzling reflections of that oscillating sliver of steel could be his undoing. In retaliation, he used all his defensive postures, both to save his skin and to impart to Murchison the fact that he was not a man to be trifled with, for the black fiend had perished in the end.
After a grueling ten-minute bout, Murchison hopped back and said, You cannot win, Bantamile. Give yourself up. Jeremy knew then that the man was fading. This was the classic tactic of a man facing his own demise. Give myself up, Murchison, he replied. That's an impossible habit to break if you think about it. If I think about it? Oh, I'm so stupid. I'm only a policeman, so I must be stupid. On guard again, sirrah. Murchison launched an attack so aggressive and complex, Sharimi was almost undone. Forced backwards so that his shoulders struck the nearby wall, he almost lost his defence. Until Murchison's terrible storm blew itself out and he was able to launch some small attack of his own. And he noticed something else. Murchison was beginning to lose his breath. He decided it was time for a trick. A risk. The man seemed to be fading. His concentration would be fading, too. He paused, affected a glance over Murchison's shoulder, then gasped as if seeing somebody. Murchison ducked and glanced back over his shoulder, but in that fraction of a second, Sheremy whipped out the tip of his swordington to cut a great gash across Murchison's right arm. With a scream, the man leapt aside and dropped his weapon. But then Sheremy was upon his enemy, his forearm across Murchison's neck in an Indu thuggy grip. Got you, he said. Murchison was unable to speak. He tried to kick out, but Sheremy was easily able to control the man with his legs and free arm. You will be signing your confession, Murchison volume. He relaxed the grip so that Murchison could speak. Never! But Sheremy grinned. Do you know what I've got in my pocket? Sergeant Coff's automatic notebook. I'm going to set that notebook to omnipresent so that when you write your confession, in it, every single officer in this part of London will be able to read it. And then you'll be undone forever. And, I most fervently hope, flung into bedlam where you belong. Murchison's face exhibited fear. He knew the game was up. He went limp. Jeremy wriggled to one side so that he was able to withdraw the notebook. Roll over onto your front, he said, and I will use the advanced thuggy grip so that when you stand up to write your confession, you don't run away. This manoeuvre completed, Jeremy thrust the notebook into Murchison's right hand. Blood from the man's wounds dripped onto it. And Murchison wrote, I, Murchison Volume, confess that I aided Sir Hosley Fane in the unlawful and malicious apprehension of Shoame Pantomile, and that I did also unlawfully put him without care or attention in the confines of Bedlam. I signed myself Murchison Q Volume. Now we'll deal with Jacques the Raper, Jeremy said. Murchison squealed and struggled. You must believe me. That is nothing to do with me. I only discovered last week that he was a Le Violet. Jeremy hesitated. This could be true, and he had the confession he needed to deal with Murchison, his immediate enemy. He glanced to the rooftop where Yom had taken the flashlight photogram 
but saw nobody. Very well, he said. All we have to do now is await a policeman. Blow your whistle, Murchison. With bad grace, Murchison did as he was told. Whereupon, five minutes later, two officers approached through the hair of Ludgate Hill. Sir, I have confessed, Murchison growled. Take me to the nearest police station, damn it. Jeremy watched the trio depart. He sagged against the stone wall upon which Murchison had pinned him. He felt exhausted. Yet the Cockney uprising was about to break like ocean swell against the stalwart lines of government soldiers. What now for London town, for himself, and for Juinevere Bedwards? Velvine walked down Gray's Inn Road, not knowing what to do, though he knew the Cockney uprising remained his eventual destination. All paths, it seemed, led to the standoff between government and the uprising at Charing Cross Road. Though he looked in all directions as he struggled down the hair-choked thoroughfare, he saw no hint of Tycho, nor any other children of the factory, all of whom seemed to have disappeared into the hair and grime of London. But he sensed a fibrility in the atmosphere, that he knew must emanate from events happening to the south. He wondered what would become of him. Already he was hungry and thirsty. When he reached the junction with High Hoban, he realised that Bedwood's house lay not too far away. There would be food there. Walking down Chancery Lane, then creeping around the rear of the building, he tried to see if anybody was in the kitchen. And he was. On the last window, he peered through, rewarded with a glimpse of Gentleman Smythe's turban. He knocked against the window, but the glass in poor condition, splintered. Hearing the noise, gentlemen came running. Who's that out there? Oh, Mr. Orchard Tide, sir, I thought we'd never see you again. Shh, Velvine hissed. I cannot enter the club, gentlemen, but I do need sustenance. Do you have any old pasties or sandwiches lying around, eh? Sir, Gentleman said, eyes wide. Your attire seems to be in disorder. Have you been attacked by a gentleman? Never mind how I look. Just find me some food. Very good, sir. Shall I inform? Just get food. Gentleman returned five minutes later with two porcelain plates. On one, a pile of seal cub sandwiches. On the other, a stack of chowder cakes. Velvine ate speedily, the entire lot. He asked, Who's around, eh? Any of the suicide club? Gentleman nodded. Lord Blackenor, Mr. Spartani and Mr. Tune are all well and present, sir, as is the good Lady Bedwards. Sir Hosley was here, but he seems to be in a spot of bother and has vanished. Then there was Mr. Pantomile. Pantomile? He's around, eh? Has anybody spoken of the wager to you? No, sir. Nobody has. Mr. Weatherby has vanished also. But there is gossip of the unsubstantial variety, I regret to say, to suggest that he is working for the government. 
Government Johnny, eh? Well, more fool him. Listen, gentlemen, you are on no account to tell anybody that you saw me. Is that understood? I am also on an important mission. Confidentiality is assured here, sir. Excellent. Well, goodbye for now. Gentlemen bowed. Goodbye, sir. Are you sure I can't clean or just brush your clothes? No time, perhaps later. With that, Valvine ran back to Chancery Lane and headed for Fleet Street, the hair of which was tied back with coloured ribbons, where it was not flattened by the passage of thousands of boots, feets and wheels. He gazed west down the strand. Even from this distance he could hear the noise of the two opposing sides, with martial drums and chants marking the presence of the army, and a massed rank of Joannas and barrel organs marking the cockneys. Not without apprehension, he walked down the strand, but a cockney costermonger general dressed in a white coat and shiny black boots stopped him near the Savoy and demanded to know his business. I am a member of the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London, he replied, and I am known to the Purleys. You must let me pass, my good man. The costermonger general shook his head. On your own head be it, mate. West of this here spot is a war zone. Are you sure you want to risk it? I must see the king and queen. Go on, then. But don't say I didn't warn you. Valvine strode on into a bizarre hinterland of tents, cannon, volunteer platoons and horses, making the strand look like the roads of the southwest where he had fought the Bosch. Few people looked at him, but those who did seemed at ease with his presence, and he realized that the condition of his clothes and somewhat unshaven appearance marked him out as an ordinary, not posh at all. He hurried on. The Pearly's Marquis flew the flag of the East End, a pie couchant on a field of mash, and it was surrounded by guards. Valvine gave his name, explained he was known to the Pearly's, then awaited a response. The response was cool. Pearly's is too busy, what with all their war plans, to see ya. Wait around, maybe tomorrow. Now scram. Valvine sighed. He turned. A man stood just a few yards away, staring at him. It was Jeremy Pantomile. Vandana took Estatia to her personal rooms at the summit of the Trimurti Temple. They were decorated in tones of crimson and silver and smelt of Nag Champa incense. A standing statue of Lord Shiva stood next to a great open window from which Estatia could see most of the temple compound, with Southall laid out further away, and, hazy in the distance, the West End. Quite a view, she remarked. Vandana nodded. But we must speak of Misanthrop Mahavishnu, she said. Estatia described her experiences in the glasshouse with Gandhi and his cohorts, then said, Misanthrop is not to be trusted. I will protect you, Vandana replied. I am high in the temple. Reassured by this, Estatia relaxed. For a few days she did nothing other than eat, drink and sleep, and on occasion read from the Vedas. The pace of her life slowed. She wondered what Cornucope was doing, 
and often pondered his mental state, for she knew he would be worried about her. But the injustice of his attitude to her in the presence of Bain Flammerashit niggled, and she knew she required at the very least an apology. Once she and Vandana discussed love. Love, Vandana opined, is acquiring access to the flow of divine ether, which comes from Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. Love has a divine source, which we mortals, constantly reincarnated, must aspire to. Despite her sympathies for this point of view, Estatia found herself dissatisfied with it. The matter of the wager now occupied her thoughts, and she began jotting down notes, beginning with the declaration made by Cornucope under the influence of Anglocide, then moving on to more philosophical matters. And then, disaster. It began with a simple call from the temple elders. Vandana left Estatia in her rooms, locking the door, as always she did. But then a rope ladder appeared outside the main window, and a man sprang from it into the room. Estatia gasped and leapt to her feet. Who are you? The man gestured with a stick of turmeric that he held. Don't make any sudden moves. This turmeric is primed and ready to go off. What do you want? Vandana will... Quiet! Climb the rope ladder. I will follow you. With no option, Estatia did as she was told. The vertiginous ascent was only a few yards. Vandana's rooms sighted at the top of the temple, and she knew who would be there, waiting for her. Welcome to the roof of the Trimurti Temple, Misanthrop said. He also held a loaded turmeric. Estatia said, I knew you'd be at the bottom of this kidnap. What do you want with me? First, take off that headscarf. He approached as she followed his instructions. As I thought, he murmured, the sign of the mind of Lord Shiva. He has passed the essence of the Shiva Emitter to you. Alerted to the true name of the device, Estatia decided to fake innocence. I don't know what you mean, she said. Come along, Mrs. Weatherby. You managed to enter the chamber in the glass house. Else, how could the Shiva emitter have marked you? I just said a few phrases. They were all guesswork. I don't know what the marks mean. And I can't see them, as surely you know. Misanthrop nodded. You cannot see them, but you do know they are present. I certainly don't know what their significance is. Misanthrop chuckled. Destruction, pure and simple. Then you still aspire to home rule? Home rule, perhaps. In due course, I work for Lord Gorge now. Estatia kept all emotion off her face, grasping now her importance to the schemes that revolved around the Shiva Emetta and the government. You amaze me, she said. He shrugged. I am the leader now that Gandhi is gone. All Lord Gorge and his cronies care about is halting the Cockney uprising. I will assist him, but I will drive a hard bargain. Home rule. And what are you going to do with me? Misanthrop gestured to a small statue of Ganesh, 
placed at the edge of the roof. We are going to Whitehall, he said. On Ganesh? He is the son of Shiva and Parvati. You could not wish for a better ride than with him. He is also the patrol of learning, said Estatia. Misanthrop ignored her, walking to the statue and patting Ganesh on his pot-belly, whereupon his trunk, which Estatia had thought made of stone, moved, blowing out a single bubble that caught the light of the sun and threw it back as ten thousand rainbows. The bubble landed on the roof beside Misanthrop, and Estatia saw that inside it lay a couch and a control panel mounted on a bronze mouse. Ganesh's vahana, or vehicle. Misanthrop attached a second and third bubble to the first, then broke the surface tension of one, and through it entered the vehicle, indicating that Estatia should do the same. Behind her, the remains of the auxiliary bubble merged with the main bubble, as she sat beside Misanthrop on the couch. You travel in style, she said, noting the brown velvet covering of the couch, the silk cushions, and the intricate decorations on the bronze mouse. Misanthrop grinned at her, then moved levers on the control panel and pressed buttons. The bubble rose, steered by Misanthrop, using a joystick. Of course, he said, I am a Brahmin, used to style. You intend bargaining with Lord Gorge for home rule, she said, but you can't force me to speak the command words of the Shiva emitter. Oh, I can, he replied. There are ways and means. Many of them I learned from Gandhi. You see, Cornucope decided to throw his hat in with the government. Presently, he is with the foreign office team in Whitehall. I do not think you will put up much resistance, Mrs. Weatherby. Estatia shuddered. She knew to what he referred. But for a short while, while she had the upper hand, though she did not know how to use her knowledge, she sat back and enjoyed the ride as best she could. They landed on the roof of the foreign office. From the mouth of the bronze mouse misanthrop, muttering to himself, blew an auxiliary bubble, which he affixed to the side of the main bubble. You cannot blow such a bubble, he explained, since this vehicle responds only to me. From the outside, you and everything inside are secure. But, anyway, nobody will know you are here. I am now going to bargain with Lord Gorge. Soon, he will have the means to blow the cockneys to smithereens, and Indu will have the guarantee of home rule. How can you get back inside the bubble to force me to speak? Estatia asked at once. Ganesh is in Southall. I do not need to. You will come out when I command the mouse to blow a bubble. And if I don't? Then I shall blow the bubble to pieces with a bazookette, and you with it. It is not indestructible, Mrs. Weatherby. Estatia said nothing more, did not move. Misanthrop had given her an escape clue. She put on a face of displeasure for his benefit glowering at him. He departed, descending via an excess stair, and at once she began testing possibilities. Surely there was a way out. Not through the main bubble, it seemed to be made of rubber, bending beneath the pressure of her hands, 
nor did a sharp hairpin burst it, and neither did words sacred to Ganesh. She sat on the couch and pondered. The key was a bronze mouse that supported the control panel. Misanthrop had used the word command, which implied, since he could not re-enter the vehicle, that he would speak to create an auxiliary bubble. The mouse mount was Ganesh's Vahana. Most likely it would activate with a word related to it. She considered a few such words in the silence of her mind, then cleared her throat and spoke. Musaka Vahana! The mouse blew a bubble. She took it to the main bubble wall and passed through. Misanthrop Mahavishnu, she muttered, as righteous anger rolled in her heart. You underestimate women just as Gandhi did, and that you do at your peril. The access stair was a spiral of wrought iron leading to the upper level of the foreign office, and already she could hear voices the noise of typewriters, and she could smell cigaresque smoke. She paused, wondering what to do. Captured by anybody in this building, Britisher or Hindu, could be fatal. And she had Cornucope to locate. She crept along corridors, listening, nervous. An exit, then... Excuse me, who are you? She span around. A burly gentleman in a pinstripe suit stood staring at her. I'm... he frowned. You're somebody who shouldn't be here. She could only think of one reply that might reassure the man. Oh, I'm the wife of Cornucope Weatherby, she said. He's in this building. I got bored, and he's speaking with Lord Blandhubble, you know. The man folded his arms. You mean the Cornicope Weatherby who is currently being questioned in this building? Estatia pursed her lips, then said, Ah, I think you should follow me. Please don't resist. You've been listening to Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Narrated by yours truly, R.D. Watson.